A Happy New Year to all of our listeners here on the Ecology Hour. To celebrate this time of reflection and new beginnings, we're bringing together art and science in a perfect combination of viewing nature through poetry. Now Mendocino is blessed with many wonderful poets and a few of them have been willing to join me on this evening's programme. We'll be visiting with Kirk Lumpkin, Maureen Epstein, Kathy Monroe and Armand Brint who all conjure nature through language for us on tonight's show. We're going to begin the programme with two poets who were recently published in a beautiful anthology called Fire and Rain, Eco-Poetry of California, edited by Lucille Langday and Ruth Nolan. The first guest, Kirk Lumpkin, I was lucky enough to meet at a California naturalist class in which he shared an incredible poem about poison oak. You'll notice a number of our poets tonight have also taken part in the UC California Naturalist Program. I began my conversation with Kirk Lumpkin by asking how poetry and being a naturalist come together. They go hand in hand. Uh, one of the poems that you first heard me do was developed during, it was not specifically part of my, my coursework, but I was writing it and working on it while I was working on my naturalist program mm -hmm. um, studies. And, uh, you know, nature poetry and poetry about the environment has been core to what I've always done, but, you know, doing the, the naturalist class and and you know completing that study you know just really deepened that mm -hmm. um that engagement and that really i am now trying to write stuff which is more more in the details of things localness and mm -hmm. you know you don't just write about a bird it's it's like, well, what kind of a bird, and, and you know, and, and you really, are you, is it a bird that's in the right place? Like, you know, yeah. you just don't make, I don't make that up, yeah. or, or try and be vague about it. Yeah. I want to be specific as, mm -hmm. as my knowledge mm -hmm. can, can take it. So I, th I think one of the things I was, I was just speaking with Kathy Monroe, um, I was commenting that one of the things that's wonderful about California naturalist classes is you have this range of people with an interest in being a naturalist and they all observe and connect with the natural world in different kinds of ways. And so what you brought to the class was this, this connection through poetry, which I think then expands all of our appreciations right um i you know it's any way that we can experience it and um, interpret it through art helps other people to take notice and uh you know so one i want to say thank you so much for doing that for us all well i i i hope to keep doing that and you know keep finding that and uh you know keep connecting so one of the things that brought you into um, the Ecology Hour today is uh, recently being published in an anthology of poems called Fire and Rain, the Eco-Poetry of California, which is um, edited by Lucille Langday and Ruth Nolan. Um, so Kirk, do you want to tell us a little bit about 
how you got involved with this book and perhaps a little bit more about how this whole book you know is formed and put together well um, I got my work solicited by one of the editors um, Lucy Day um, this book was had its opening uh, party it's 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 book party mm -hmm. at the watershed environmental poetry festival in Berkeley which I've been involved with putting on for more than 20 years um, so there's that connection I've known Lucy through poetry for a long time um, and part of what's special about this anthology is the way it's organized um, is that the I'm not going to name all of the sections but I will just start off they are coast and ocean coastal redwoods hills and canyons fields and meadows desert rivers lakes and lagoons so instead of any other way to organize a poetry anthology it is by habitats, ecozones, biological areas. Um, it sounds more like a guidebook almost to me, like a naturalist guidebook, but but then it... Right, well, and, and I think on, on one level that's what it tries to be through the eyes of poets, mm -hmm. who are of course um, g engaging, as we all do, mm -hmm. on, on multi-levels, mm -hmm. but in a normal guidebook you're only going to talk about some of those levels that you're engaging with at that time whereas uh, a poet is trying to bring other uh, other levels um, to bear at the uh, same time. So I'm also intrigued by the title um, Fire and Rain. It's interesting to me um, as an immigrant here I think I wouldn't have understood that that exemplifies California as I do now, having been here for 10 years and especially in the last few years. So how do you think people use poetry or benefit from poetry when they are dealing with the dramatic changes we have in our environment around here? Well, I think sort of the quickest answer I think of is 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 one can find some solace in poems of, uh, you know, some level of commiseration and, uh, but also hope hopefully there's some of just that um, engagement with the natural forces and understanding that those are way bigger than us as individuals in our single lifetimes and there are these big stretches of time and evolution that lead us to where we are and our place in it is is in that framework rather than just um, our neighborhood um, our county mm -hmm. our family um, although you know I think poetry also can strengthen and enlarge our, our, our view of that as well what brought you to poetry is it something you've always I don't know really I mean I first started writing back uh, in like junior high mm -hmm. high school um, 
I think it was a way for me to um, look at and and deal with uh, inner life things, connecting with the outer world in in ways that I wasn't finding other you know ways to either express or engage. Mm -hmm. It is interesting, isn't it, how it allows us to express. Um, just as you were saying just then, from from something very minute to some like massive time scale beyond that which humans can really appreciate, it allows us to have some language to have that in, which really we can't do otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Kurt, would you mind me asking, would you be willing to read us a poem today? Sure. Great. Um, I have two poems in uh, Fire and Rain. Um, Eco Poetry of California. Um, I would do uh, for Poison Oak. Um, and I think it works best with a little bit of introduction. And the first thing that you should know is that humans are the only local species that experiences contact dermatitis from touching Poison Oak. And I also like to give you three quick quotes from Kate Marion Child's book, Secrets of the Oak Woodland. Poison oak is so adaptable that it may have a wider geographic distribution than any other California native. At least 50 kinds of California bird species eat its berries and seeds. In some areas, deer eat more poison oak than any other plant. And I would also say in this context, in, in Kate's book, she also calls it a keystone species because of how many other creatures depend on it. To poison oak, Toxicodendrum diversilobum. You with diversely lobed leaves in sets of threes on diverse forms, from little plant to bush to vine to treelet, at home, in diverse habitats, from grasslands to chaparral, conifer forests to oak woodlands, coastal scrub to riparian thickets, but especially along the edges as if guarding the borders of different plant communities. From dappled shade to full sun, in male and female plants, from Baja to British Columbia, you are a provisioner and shelter for multitudes of birds some that engage with you in a gift exchange and for receiving your fruits they help to spread your seeds. You are a provider of food for elk, chipmunk, squirrel, mice, wood rats, deer. But in the DNA's spiraling cornucopia of possibility in the rich red whorls of your ancestry, did you have a genetic premonition? A creature would come someday 
who for itself presumes superiority and vast destructive impudence. It would be your destiny to inflict a small but persistently irritating penalty or worse for those ignorant of your own special art of resistance to this creature. Oh, beautiful plant, whose fiery shining reds are the most vivid of fall colors in all of California. I acknowledge your diverse strengths and mostly try very hard to respect your space. But sometimes the fierceness of your presence calls up in me a similar fierceness and I feel the need to protect my space by cutting you out of it. As one who sprouts up even from the ashes after the fire, I bet you will survive this current round of climate change. I am sure there are many ways our roots are deeply interwoven, though I dare not touch your skin and wonder what our world might be if we were as true to our nature as you are to yours. That is just wonderful. <laughs> I love that poem from the first time I heard you say it. And hearing it now, or a, a few times I've managed to hear you say it and like, you do it so wonderfully when you do um, it really comes home to me just what you expressed about how much you do study a plant or an animal before you're writing about it because you learn a huge amount about poison oak and listening to that poem in, in, in reading that poem so I, I very much appreciate the, uh, the efforts that you'd gone to to to, to really help us understand how valuable the poison oak is for us as well. Right. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I think most humans have looked at poison oak pretty one-dimensionally. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's our problem plant. It's poison to mm -hmm. us. And, you know, anyway, I, I'd been... I'd been, you know, having some of the typical problems that we have with poison oak, and it seemed time to look deeper. Mm, well, it certainly, that poem certainly does, and I think the other thing that I find fascinating is the mention you have of climate change in there, and how, uh, because of it, how diverse it can be, how it may well be be able to um, manage the changes in the climate that we will see. Um, it makes me think of um, right here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. Right now we have a project um, from UC Davis looking at uh, some of the oaks on the site and um, bringing in some acorns from Southern California to uh, see how they are managing here and to consider how this area will fare as we do have a warmer and drier climate. Um, and whether some of those oaks, some of the, the, the kind of elasticity in the, the oaks that there are would allow that to happen for us to continue to have 
these oaks around here so i i you know it just it, it, i love that you managed to touch on that in that poem as well there's a huge amount so um Kirk, can i can i ask if, if folks are interested in your poetry and would like to hear more or um perhaps pick up other books beyond um fire and rain the eco poetry of california have you any suggestions for them <laughs> uh Mm, I've, I've got a couple of books, um, but they're probably going to be hard to find. Oh. You know, you could probably find um, In Deep online. I have CDs with my poetry, which is which are, are definitely still available. You can check out my website, which is mostly uh, very much out of date, but you can find an email address for me there. And I can, yeah, if you're interested... <laughs> Can I ask, have what's inspired you to be writing? Has that changed over time? I mean, it sounds like perhaps the naturalist side has become stronger. Oh yes, very definitely. Uh. Um, since I retired and, and moved to Mendocino County, um, went through the naturalist program. Yeah, that has been become you know a much more a focus of my my more recent work. Um, uh, to Poison Oak was kind of a turning point. Um, in that one, I'm directly talking to a plant. Mm. Um, actually, what I've been trying more recently is I am trying to speak from the other creature or um, a natural forces perspective. Mm. Um, Gosh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to hear. I've some got, of I've those. got, a, I've got a rap in the voice of a Stellar's J, and I've got a, a piece called "I Am Fire." Um, I have another thing that, that attempts to speak from the point of view of a tan oak tree. Anyway, so you know, wow. of course, w one can't help but anthropomorphize in in these situations because mm -hmm. these are things that don't have your language and mm -hmm. you, you know but um, I've studied the things a lot and um, I think you know a, a lot of information um, is true in them Absolutely. And, and, and it's been really fun for me and really really interesting of course before that you know I have love poems and you know uh, protest poems and you know all, all kinds of mm. of you know poems that were meant to go with music and lyrics and you know but mm -hmm. where I am right now is is definitely a is, is eco poetry mm. well we really appreciate it and I'm thrilled that you came on the ecology hour today and in fact we have Kirk to thank for encouraging us to focus on poetry at the beginning <laughs> of the year can I ask just um, Harold any exciting new things for you are you uh, planning specific kinds of poetry perhaps or I got some things I'm working on again kind of in this vein is called I've called as a group voices of nature um, you know trying to you know speak from many many years ago I uh, was impressed uh, initially with the work of Gary Snyder and read him saying at one point well because the trees can't speak for themselves we need to speak for them and 
and actually I think seem to have taken that much more literally than I have ever had before. I think it's quite interesting in um, an era when people spend less and less time outdoors than they ever have done before so have fewer and fewer opportunities to have those connections directly themselves perhaps your poetry provides them with an opportunity to do that I hope so I hope so too <laughs> I mean I'll you know I hope to be doing it more and more locally here um, but having spent more than 40 years in the Bay Area and have been a part of the poetry community there for basically all that time you know that's often where I get the call to go back and read my poetry so you know a big urban area certainly needed although you know people here miss a lot of it too and you know say people here are just as likely to not look at poison oak in a any kind of a positive way pretty much as as, as urbanites well, I would say that anybody who's listened to our show tonight will change the way that they look at Poison Oak. <laughs> I certainly have. Every time I've seen it since then, I feel like your poem, bits of your poem come to me. So, Kirk, thank you so much for coming thank on you, the Apology Hour. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anybody out there in Mendocino County? I love to perform poetry. Ask me for your event. It's going to be free or beyond cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, although I left an area, the Bay Area, which had more poetry events in one day than all of Mendocino County has in one whole month, um, I get to do more outside of strictly the poetry world here. And I really love that, because, I mean, I think poetry speaks as well to non-poets as to poets. So, um, anyway... Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that offer, and watch out. Your phone may be ringing <laughs> off the hook now. That's that's great. Um, we're wishing you a year filled with poetry and experiences in nature. Thank you so much. And you too. Well, thanks so much to Kirk. That poem about poison oak is just one of my favourites. Another poet featured in Fire and Rain, eco-poetry of California, is Maureen Epstein. I began by asking Maureen how nature has inspired her poetry. Uh, I am originally a New Zealander. I left uh, my home country when I was uh, in my early 20s, lived in England for a while, and then came to California. So what mattered to me was putting down roots. And uh, I have found, particularly living here on the North Coast, that uh, putting down roots really means learning to observe and love the land that mm. uh, I live on. Mm. It's interesting. I have a, a somewhat similar experience not having been born and brought up in California. And I think when you first move somewhere, it all seems very strange and new and starting to build an appreciation for the natural beauty, however different it might be to your, you know, where you grew up is, is really important. Oh, yes, yes. In fact, um, I'm, I'm just looking for a, a poem I wrote years ago. The gist of what I am trying to, to say is that my interest in nature um, is a way of learning to belong. Mm -hmm. 
I, I understand that very well. <laughs> Do you feel that over your time here and through your poetry, that is something that you felt you've accomplished? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what kinds of things have you focused on to help that process along? I, I think probably one uh, way of thinking about it is the, the way I have observed the, the cycles of life. Mm -hmm. the, um, the way that the land regenerates itself after fire. In fact, one of the poems that I hope we'll have time to read is really about that, um, uh, how Montgomery Woods recovered after the fire. I would, I would absolutely be thrilled if you would be willing to share that poem. Uh, sure, let me just find it in the... It, this is one of the poems I have in the collection, and uh, here we go. Redwood Grove After Fire Crunch of black fragments underfoot Faint whiff of char Earth beside the trail fresh broken where a burned tree fell, as they do sometimes, years later. Cave walls of the hollow giants gleam with fresh scorch. Ferns have returned to the flat, though sparser now. More logs among them fallen. We celebrate survival. Redwood sorrel has spread its green salve over ashy ground. Warty and wrinkled, the old ones stand in their accustomed silence. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that that's beautiful. It takes me right, right to. I feel like I just went on a visit to Montgomery Woods in that. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting. Um, we touch a couple of times tonight on how poetry has been important, particularly after fire. Um, and I, I'm interested in your experience. Have you have you felt felt that? seeing how fire has affected California landscapes has been important for your poetry? I, I, I'm starting to process that, Hannah. Um, because I live on the coast, I've had uh, not all that much experience of, of fire and the recovery from it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think what has influenced my poetry more is the, the cycles of seasons, mm. you know, the, the coming of the wildflowers, the, the fear of fire in, in the fire season, mm. and, uh, but from a distance rather than close up. Yes, which is which is a good way to feel it. I have to say, <laughs> having been experienced it fairly close to recently. Oh um, yes, yes. So I, just to finish off, Maureen, and I do appreciate the time that you've given us today. For those folks who are interested in your poetry, or perhaps hearing you um, performing any of your poetry, do you have any dates coming up where you might be performing, or other books that you'd like to share with them? Uh, yes, I have um, uh, three books, two, uh, two chapbooks and one uh, full-length collection uh, titled Rogue Wave at Glass Beach, and the other two titles um, Quickening and um, Earthward, and they're, all, uh, they're certainly all available at Gallery Bookshop and um, the, the uh, Earthward. 
my most recent one is available through um, also through finishing line prayers well thank you so much for that beautiful poem maureen we'll now move on to appreciate a slightly different poetic form one that is also very connected with nature the haiku kathy monroe is a local educator poet and also another accredited california naturalist she started the conversation by telling us what inspires her poetry well actually i write haiku nice short little moments that are that i uh, notice uh, and can put into a, a poem haiku is a wonderful form um, because it's short but you try to capture a special moment especially out in nature so so I'm I'm always intrigued by haiku because they always do seem to try to capture just that sort of magical moment that you might be having in nature typically is that the kind of the 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 history of the form of haiku yes it's usually it's um, a Japanese form uh, and it is meant to uh, usually have some reference to some season um, related to nature yeah, so it's it's definitely one of those things or poems that has you just have an aha moment mm. uh, where you really notice something that strikes you mm. deep inside that you try to f figure out how to capture that moment mm. in a few words. So and, and it's it, yeah, that's when we go out in nature and take a walk or in the garden or mm. interact um, with with something intimately like that mm -hmm. that haikus emerge mm. so i think rather than talking about them too much i wonder if you have a haiku that you could share with us um let me see i wrote a number of haiku after the fire mm. um and but i'll write one that kind of fits for the here's one i'll share that kind of fits for right now lichen covering oaks winter leafless branches drenched in dawn light mm. i i just think that's beautiful <laughs> thank you kathy and i i also wanted to touch on the fact that um so for you haiku have been used to express these wonderful moments in our lives and connecting right. with nature but you've also more recently been very badly affected by the wildfires in Redwood Valley. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit of your experience and, and perhaps a haiku that, that was born out of that experience? Um, yeah, the, the, I was right there on Tomkai Road in Redwood Valley where the fire roared down the hillside and we barely had time to evacuate. And so I have some pretty devastated parts of my land. Um, but there have been but one of the things I've noticed is how the land is recovering. Mm. It's, it may not, and so the haiku is kind of a, can be bittersweet too, mm. Mm. Um, in terms of something changed, but but everything changes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And to and to recognize the beauty and the change. Yeah. So, um, let me see. Like one of them I noticed when I was, shortly after the fire walking through the woods was, the fir trees and um so this is a haiku for that casting their needles dying firs 
recovering naked earth. Mm. So all the death was gone, but mm. they were trying to replace it mm. in the process of dying. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> and and it's interesting, I, you know, although it wasn't my home that, that went, we had fire coming so close here, and um, observing the recovery is is something that does take you to tune in quite minutely, doesn't it? There is so much happening in these areas where we're seeing regrowth, or in some cases we're watching death. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, but it's but it's part of that full picture of of what we experience in life. Mm. You know, the the recycling and mm. uh, the spiral. Mm. Uh, one of the things that happened here is the wildflowers where we're particularly beautiful mm-hmm. afterwards and then with the fire sweeping out all the dead grasses um, when the thatch was gone um, the wildflowers were even more abundant and the mm-hmm. green grass when it came was extra brilliant hmm. wow um, yeah well I'm excited yeah. to be seeing this. which you probably will notice there yeah we're seeing the, the grass right now and I'm excited to be seeing the, the wildflowers when they come so um, Kathy I'm interested in the, the the writing the haikus for you is it does it help you the process of writing them um yes i mean it helped me really try to capture or find kind of delve into myself in terms of of where something touched me mm. and to respond to that deeper touch mm-hmm and i know that fairly recently you've been um kind of on the road right sharing some of these poems in 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 a in a larger production did you find that people uh felt that they could have a better understanding of everything that was going on because of the way you had interpreted it through the haiku i think so i had um a whole set of fire haiku published in the arts and entertainment magazine that the art center um mendocino arts mm-hmm. and i had people that talked to me and sent in on and connected saying that they really felt like they captured mm-hmm. they were very evocative mm-hmm. of the experience i really appreciate that you um that you were willing to share those because they are um i think quite personal as well um can i ask how are you doing now i mean this is a good year on from the time in which you lost your home are things improving for you oh i actually am back on my place i'm in a tiny house on wheels that's not too tiny i feel like i can live in it and Mm -hmm. and it's wonderful to be here seeing more of the recovery day by day Mm -hmm. too um, I am, you know, seeing trees that we have to bring down because mm-hmm. they're definitely dead. But there's a tremendous amount of resprouting happening, especially among bays and madrones yeah. um, and some of the oaks. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very happy to hear that you are back on a piece of land that I know that you're very connected with. Um, so one of the things that I would love to, to ask you a little bit more about, um, when I first moved to Ukiah, I thought it was fabulous that they had a haiku festival because they kind of had to, right? If you spell Ukiah backwards, you have haiku. Um, and Kathia, are you involved somewhat in the haiku festival? Yes, I kind of help keep it going. Uh, I think it's a wonderful um, kind of serendipitous thing that Ukiah and haiku are so intertwined as palindromes. 
Hmm. So I think it's great that some people were inspired, I think, oh, close to 15 years ago or more, uh, to create a festival celebrating mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And we asked people to, we're going to be updating our website. It's Ukiah Haiku Festival, um, or Haiku Ukiah, actually, is the way we call it. Okay. And um, it's a, they can go to our website that's going to be updated Excellent. I hope we'll we'll try and have some more haikus in the lead up to that festival um, on this show. Uh, for those folks who are thinking, well, this sounds interesting, but I've never written anything before and I don't know how to do a haiku. <laughs> would you have any advice for them? Would you encourage them still to try? Oh, definitely. And the, our website has um, suggestions. It has some lessons on it, some ideas, and they can... There's um, listings of the winners from previous years, so they can kind of get a sense of what um, what we have felt are, are really good haiku. Um, but the main thing is just to get out, actually, and have those aha moments, and then try to capture them. And the haiku um, are not exactly the 575, which is kind of traditional. They can be a little different in form. So we suggest that people check out some of the haiku that's on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you're going to get someone later that can talk more about it, too. Mm. But most most haiku is rooted in nature, which I think is a, a great way to start I, getting out there. Yeah, and I, I have to take this opportunity just to... Um, appreciate uh, Jean Neer who I had a call from yesterday and is turning 104 years old uh, on uh, on December 31st she sends out a beautiful calendar every year which has a haiku for every month of the year and uh, always makes me feel like <laughs> I'm not working hard enough <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I, no I'm glad you mentioned that because I just got her calendar too it's, so, uh, and, and I'm delighted always with um, what she takes great pleasure in sharing through her haiku. Yeah, and it and uh, it really does help you get connected with all that. And it's the changing seasons, isn't it? And these little moments yeah. that uh, that she appreciates. And it might be in her garden. It might be um, the plants that she's growing. Um, so for everybody, it might be just something slightly different, but uh, it, it's a wonderful way to express um, all those changes through the year. So one other thing, Kathy, I wanted to take the chance to just um, touch on with you. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to mention in tonight's Ecology Hour is that uh, the California Naturalist Program is um, recruiting right. Um, Kathy, I know you are a California Naturalist yourself. Um, I wondered if you might share a little bit about your experience of the program and whether you would like to encourage other folks to do it too. Oh, I most definitely encourage other people to do it. Uh, there's nothing like uh, learning you know, more in-depth about nature, which the program will do because it covers a wide spectrum from geology through um, animals and, tra- and tracking and plants but um, in, in the general terrain. But um, you also are with other people that are just as enthusiastic about learning about uh, connecting to the natural world mm-hmm. uh, and how to share it. Uh, I had a, a um, we do a special project as part of the Naturals program and I got into um, doing research on monarchs and butterflies and realizing how much we need to be helping them and so it's, I've been inspired to work with other people that 
are trying to um, help the butterflies, it's, uh, which is which is an exciting thing too. So you yeah. You find projects that you feel um, passionate about. And it's nice to see after a number of years of the California Naturalist class in uh, in Ukiah that all these projects have taken off and all these people are kind of involved in them and, and the benefits that have come out of the program following that. Um, and I think your Monarch pro project is one of the ones that has been most successful. We re really appreciate all the work that you have done with that. Um, I think the other thing that I've enjoyed through seeing different naturalists is that people do have a connection to the natural world in so many different ways and so your expression of it through haiku um do you know is, is different to the way other people do it but but we all get to learn something about how other people are ex having experiences that's true um because there's so many facets to the natural world mm -hmm. we all see different different facets or like a prism you know mm -hmm. and the the light shines through a little differently for each of us. Mm. Um, so I have one more haiku I'd like to share. I'd like that very much. Because sometimes you get to think more about the universal with a haiku. And I was looking at a snail shell, and so this is what came out. Expanding outward, snail shell, recording life, widening spiral. Mm. That is a wonderful way for us to be starting the new year, I think. Kathy, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Ecology Hour today, and we look forward to uh, hearing from you and seeing you, hopefully. Well, thank you so much to Kathy for those beautiful and thoughtful haiku. We'll hear a little more about the Ukiah Haiku Festival with Armand Brint to finish tonight's programme. Armand began by telling us a little about being Ukiah's first Poet Laureate. I, I am indeed the first of what's turned out to be many now. I think we're on our eighth Poet Laureate now. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. And do you feel that in Mendocino County we are seeing quite a, a strong scene for poets? I think, yeah, I've been here for 30 years and I've noticed over that time um, kind of growing popularity. I mean, I, I can't say it's like... Uh, the growing popularity of reality television or anything, but a, a kind of a slow, steady growth in popularity in poetry. And yes, I think there are many fine poets in Mendocino County. I think the county tends to attract artists in general. Mm. I, th I think it's it's interesting to me because I think I, I, I see that, but and I also see this constituency of people who connect strongly with the natural world moving here. Kirk Lumpkin, who we interviewed earlier in the program, is one of those people who's moved here from the Bay Area. Um, do you think there is often a, a kind of intersection between those folks who want to be more connected to the natural world and also perhaps want to express that um, through poetry? Absolutely. I, I think the, the natural beauty um, of the county attracts uh, people who, uh, I mean, I think you would hardly find anyone who's moved here who hasn't moved, at least in part, because of nature. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's true for artists, uh, poets and painters and artists in general, that people move here uh, in order to kind of steep their, themselves in uh, in nature and make that part of their art. Mm. Can I ask? Is it something that you um, feel is an important part of your of your art? 
It absolutely is. Um, I, uh, let's see, I, I think I would put it this way, that, um, you know, in the face of all of such kind of sweeping degradation that's happening in the environment, I feel that poetry can help us kind of understand our place um, as an interdependent part of nature. You know, it helps helps us align ourselves with nature and that and to see that we are part of the larger ecology. So in my Buddhist practice, we call it um, natural law or the Dharma. And um, so we can see that we're uh, governed by the same kind of natural law as the rest of nature. And I think it's helpful to, to kind of alight on that context and to understand that we are, we are just simply a part of nature mm-hmm. and uh, not opposed to nature. Mm. Or, or, or even in charge of it. <laughs> or, or it's not under our dominion, for mm. sure. Mm. And um, if we see ourselves as uh, just a, a, a kind of a, you know, a part, a subset of nature, then we would naturally want to uh, uh, be a part of anything that support, you know, that is a positive part of supporting nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the the other thing that I, has come across in the interviews in the Ecology Hour tonight is um, that perhaps poetry or art gives us a way to... Um, consider time scales beyond our very human focused time scale which is often right. needed yeah. yeah when you're thinking I think about that's an excellent point mm. yeah I, I think when art is successful and maybe in particular poetry it's able to kind of resonate on the individual level but it also captures something universal that anyone can re- relate to and i think uh nature is that perfect kind of universal element mm-hmm well, I'm thrilled that you've managed to join us um, on the Ecology Hour today, and I, I, I wondered, Armand, would you be willing to share one of your poems with us? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I actually selected a poem that I think is kind of emblematic of how I see um, uh, how I see our, our, uh, the human as part of nature. And so this, this poem is called Bees, And it begins with a Buddhist blessing, which is simply, bless me into usefulness. And so, bees. A trailer truck overturned in Wyoming, busting open 200 honeybee hives. Clouds of bees stopped traffic in both directions. The bees were probably already upset by the unhappy motion of the truck, and now they were overturned, homeless, and swarming along Highway 220, searching for their queen and the prefabricated palace of their hives. The newscaster said, here's a story that gets a lot of buzz, which just goes to show how unfeeling the news has become. Even under the constant threat of colony collapse, these bees have had resigned themselves to an unnatural itinerant life laboring in commercial fields. But now they were stranded on the highway, sideswiped by a pickup truck driver who probably never brought his wife a bouquet of flowers. The bees looked on as workers in yellow suits burned their broken hives. I imagine the remaining bees would not last long in the cold Wyoming night, and if they did, their honey would be bitter. What we need is news from the queendom of the wild, 
where bees are free to flower to their tiny heart's content. We need to paint the yellow lines with buttercups and stay alert at the wheel, for thousands of lives may depend on our wakefulness. Mm. Thank you so much. That that was You're welcome. That was really wonderful, and it, it it's interesting how the poems across tonight's programs have have given us different kinds of angles, and that gives us another another way of thinking about things, um, which which is really hugely useful for the program. Um, I'm interested particularly, so that that was a, a longer form poem, but I believe uh, that you are also involved in the Ukiah Haiku Festival. Yes, I'm, um, I've been involved for, uh, let's see, I think we're going on our 16th year. Um, so I've been, in, I, I, as Poet Laureate, I, I started the Ukiah Haiku uh, Festival, although it was... Um, we have a committee, and it was a member of the committee's idea. It just happened to occur under my tenure. But in any case, I've been involved for the last 16 years um, organizing and also judging the haiku. And it's grown tremendously. Uh, I think in the first couple of years, we were getting maybe a couple of hundred submissions, local submissions. Uh, we expanded the festival to include an international category that was uh, judged by a, a very well-known and respected haikuist uh, who actually lived in Wallala. She has since passed away, but we have another uh, a judge that has taken up the torch, and, and he's also a very respected international haiku writer. In any case, now we have an international category, and I think we're getting somewhere between, I would say, 2,000 and 2,500 submissions Gosh. in total for the uh, festival. So it's, it's grown by leaps and bounds, and I still, after all these years, really think those categories that are aimed at the children um, are the most um, inspiring and moving, uh, really, of the haiku. They're Because they're, the kids, uh, when they write a good haiku, it's very spontaneous, mm -hmm. it's very in the moment and uh, very genuine and it's just a treat to see the kids come up in front of the audience and, and read their haiku one i mean it, it's a, a very ironic form because in japan for example there are haiku writers who have spent decades and decades trying to perfect their haiku it's a you know it's obviously a very short form it's only three lines but um it can take a lifetime to really uh, like any good poetry, to come up with uh, uh, um, an extraordinary haiku. On the other hand, um, it's such a spontaneous form. It relies so much on observation and, and kind of immediate feeling that if you're kind of in the zone, um, anybody can write a good haiku about something they just experienced in nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the tie-in to your program, because haiku is always about a moment in nature. It's it's fascinating to me to recognize that what we consider kind of the skills of a naturalist are also those of somebody who is writing a haiku. There's somebody who is observant um, and and has a real attention to detail. Absolutely. I mean, I, those are the kinds of intersections that I just love. Yeah. Um, that, as you said, that attention to detail, that ability to be present, the ability to to um, uh, open yourself to the experience in nature. Um, 
I think the other thing that I've been appreciating um, often when you're hearing or reading a haiku, there is a sort of um, surprise moment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that is exciting is that, you know, often that's what happens in nature. Um, You have either a realization or, you know, something happens that that opens up a a new understanding for you. And, And haikus help us to all do that, you know, to go, gosh, isn't that fascinating? Yes, it does look like that or it does remind me of that. Um, so I really appreciate your, uh, your encouraging this festival to take place. Yes, absolutely. The, you know, that they call that the aha moment mm. in haiku, or sometimes it's called the haiku moment. <laughs> when you have this insight or this, uh, this kind of epiphany um, that happens as you're looking at something in close detail and opening yourself to the experience. So yes, uh, that is that is in fact in fact probably the most important part of a haiku is mm. this uh, this moment of realization. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Armand. I really appreciate you taking the time, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the in the new year. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and happy new year to everyone. <laughs> Well, thank you to you all for listening to tonight's Ecology Hour and enjoying this nature-inspired poetry. As I mentioned earlier, both Kathy Monroe and Kirk Lumpkin, two of the poets and guests on tonight's show, are also accredited California naturalists. If you enjoy exploring and learning about our local ecology, engaging in citizen science and sharing your knowledge with others, the California Naturalist Program is a great program for you. The 40-hour course combines a science curriculum with guest lecturers, field trips and project-based learning to explore the unique ecology and natural history of Mendocino County. Please remember that if you have any comments about the program, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email hbird, H-B-I-R-D, at U-C-A-N-R dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. Well, thanks again to you all for listening, and I'm wishing you all an incredibly happy new year for 2019. Welcome to Mendocino Theatre Company's One Minute Radio Theatre. I'm Pamela Allen, MTC's Artistic Director, and I'm thrilled to present an ongoing series of One Minute Radio Plays written by playwrights of all ages from Mendocino County and beyond. Sexism, written and performed by Annabelle Guinan, an eighth grader at Three Rivers Charter School. A definition of sexism is prejudice, stereotyping, or discrimination, typically against women on the basis of sex. Something that I have seen and experienced in school is that girls have a way stricter dress code than boys and are constantly getting in trouble for what they choose to wear. For example, if they wear items that show some skin, they get sent to the office or have to change into more appropriate clothing. Boys, on the other hand, just pretty much have to keep their shirts on and they're good. Apparently, I was breaking the dress code in first grade by wearing a spaghetti strap dress to school, and I got sent to the office to get a coat to put on over it. The different demands can be confusing, hard to deal with, and can make girls feel insecure. Sexism can also cause long-lasting physical effects. 
there are girls going on serious diets or starving themselves, which can lead into eating disorders. It also affects how girls present themselves in public. They are scared of being made fun of or getting in trouble. The expectations for beauty are so high. It's Disney princesses. I mean, that's our beauty standard. We are shaming girls and telling them that they're ugly and not to accept themselves as who they are. Girls can get so overwhelmed by this that they purposely hurt themselves. Ask yourself if you have ever seen or experienced sexism in your school or work. Did you stand up for yourself or for others? You have been listening to Mendocino Theatre Company's One Minute Radio Theatre with sound design and production by Ken Krauss, directed by Lori LaPaul. For more information, go to mendocinotheatre.org or email us at mtc at mcn.org.